Okay, hello everyone. I think we can start. Uh, I can see that you have already uh, quite a few people joining us today. So thanks a lot for your time. Happy New Year to everyone, especially those that I haven't been able to speak to uh, so far this year. Um, so we are here for the 2022 Outlook uh, and our key convictions uh, for the coming year. Today is Thursday, the 13th of January, 2022. And we're going to have two speakers today. So I'm going to start. I am Maxime Alimi, Head of Macro and Allocation. And then we're going to have Philippe Kellerhals, Head of Fixed Income, who's going to give us more details on our views uh, regarding the fixed income asset class. So we are planning this call for about 45 minutes. So we're going to try to speak no more than 35 to 40 minutes, uh, the both of us, with Philippe so that we can have a few, a few minutes for questions at, at the end that you can, I think, type into the, the system so that I can see them and answer uh, at the very, very end of the call. So as you can see, the title of uh, the outlook that we have at the moment is New Year, New Decade. So why do we have this uh, weird title? Uh, because I think, obviously, uh, 2022 is a new year. It's not a new decade, but What's happened with the pandemic is that we have to some extent forgotten that we have indeed entered a new decade. And I think two key structure, structural trends uh, will be important for the coming decade and will be different from the previous one. One of them, and I think that's very topical at the moment, is that for the first time in a very long time, central banks really want to tighten policy. I think since the 2008 financial crisis, we always had good reasons not to hike rates or to wait for longer or to have very shallow tightening cycles. And I think this is different today and that's different probably for the upcoming cycle for the coming years. The second big trend is in China. I think for the past decade and even two decades, China has been very positive to the world, both because of growth, China accounted for about 30% of global growth over the past 10 years, but also in terms of inflation, given that China was exporting disinflation to the rest of the world. That also, I think, is coming to an end. And obviously, we're not seeing it right now. Maybe it's not going to be a topic for this year, but I'm sure it's going to be a topic for the coming decade. So now if we go into uh, the key takeaways, uh, our key convictions for the coming year, I think the starting point is that the macro environment will be strong and earning growth should play a central role in 2022, especially compared to the previous two years where it was all about multiples, expansion and, and compression. Second, we're going to have policy risk, especially around central banks, but we're also going to have political risk in 2022 with a number of important elections coming up in Europe, in the US, in Asia. In terms of the allocation, so I don't think we want to say this is going to be our positioning for the, for the whole of the year, but clearly the way we start the year is to say we are positive on credit and we buy the dips in both cash and CDS, and Philippe is going to discuss that. And in equities, what we have started to see for the very first few days of the year is that the cyclical rotation is back in full swing. I think this is going to continue for some time, for now, probably not the whole, for the whole year, but this is clearly the position we want to start the year with. 
So let me comment a little bit on the macro outlook and let's start with this kind of roadmap for the year. So here, what, what I've tried to do is to say which are the risk events and we can try to map them into what's high probability versus low probability and what's high impact versus low impact. So clearly what you want to focus on is the top right quadrant and here our top risk is clearly an excessive Fed tightening, which would hurt risky assets uh, for, for this year. This is something we're gonna talk a lot about, and this is something probably most investors have on top of their mind at the moment. But as you see, there are a number of other risks. The blue ones are the political risks, and we see here that obviously the uh, midterm elections in the US will be interesting and probably will lead to some paralysis of Congress, something we know uh, could happen and has happened in the past. We also have uh, elections in Italy, probably, uh, if Mario Draghi leaves as prime minister to become president of the Republic. We're gonna have the presidential elections in France, elections in Brazil. And also uh, something that we haven't talked about a lot is, well, could we have stress coming from sovereign debt again in Europe? Uh, especially given the very large increases in public debt uh, over the pandemic. And obviously with current tensions from Russia, could we have uh, risks coming from oil prices at the moment where we see strong momentum uh, in, in oil. So I think these are uh, all of the risks that we have in mind at the moment. And again, with uh, a key focus on, on the Fed, on oil and on uh, politics. In terms of the macro uh, scenario, I think it should be positive. I don't think we have massive uh, macro risks at the moment. Growth should be positive and fairly robust uh, this coming year. And one of the key reasons for that is not only we have less vulnerability from COVID and the fact that increasingly the impact of variants is smaller and smaller on economic activity, but also because the stimulus that we've had in the past will continue to benefit uh, economic growth this year, especially if you look here on the left-hand side, the money in households' pockets is very, very plentiful and they will be spending that money over the coming year. And the same is kind of true for companies which have raised a lot of money at very attractive terms and will spend it through more business investment and also to some extent through dividends and buybacks this year. Obviously, what's important also, and we've already alluded to that, is uh, central banks' policies. I think what we should be looking at is the chart on the left here, which is what's the trajectory for U.S. inflation over the coming years. And what's the, what the Fed is worried about is not just really the first bar, which is, yes, inflation will be high for the coming 12 months, but also what's probably more worrisome to them is well, inflation is expected by the markets to stay around 3% for another two years after the first one. And that really is what they call the anchoring of inflation expectations. And this is something they don't want to happen. And this is why what we are expecting or seeing already is a shift in the reaction function of central banks to ensure that for the first time in a long time, inflation is priority of the growth. Another way of looking at that is the chart on the right, where you see that if you look at the good old Taylor rule that nobody is using anymore and hasn't been using since the global financial crisis, well, if you take this back, 
from the shelf, what you see is that the tailor room would be telling you that rates would already need to be at 5% when they are still at zero. Turning to markets, uh, and obviously I'll skip fixed income that we will be discussing after, uh, but really I think top of mind for many investors is equity markets just way too expensive, and that means we should be less invested uh, into 2022. Here, I just want to highlight a paradox, which is that if you look at valuations on an absolute terms, and that's the chart on the left here, where you see basically where should the S&P be at different levels of PE multiples, well, you see that we've had incredible multiple expansion over the past three years. We are currently running around 21%, 21 uh, times uh, price to earnings, while we were, for example, around 11, uh, 10 years ago. So it's clearly uh, among the most expensive markets we've seen in a long while. However, when you look at a different metric, which is on the right-hand side here, the equity risk premium, which is a relative metric of equities relative to bonds, well, what you see there is actually that valuations are not so demanding. They're high, they're not crazy. And there, it means really that you're going back to what's exactly happening right now, which is depending on your view of where bond yields can go, this will really determine how much multiple compression you can have this year. But again, the bottom line is as long as bond yields are extremely expensive, it doesn't, it's, it's, it kind of makes sense that equities are very expensive. And so precisely here, that's where I think the scenario for the coming year is about multiple compression versus earnings growth. So if you look at the chart here on the left, what you see is that in 2021, we actually have uh, a decrease in uh, valuations. And that was obviously more than offset by earnings growth. And what I would expect actually for this year is something quite similar. So probably slightly less uh, valuation, valuation compression, also slightly less earnings growth, but overall there is probably still room for positive returns overall. Clearly probably not that as much as we've had for the past three years, but I don't think it's crazy to expect that. But what's more important obviously is that it's not gonna be equally shared across market segments. And here, what we are starting to see uh, so far this year is a very significant uh, rotation towards cyclical stocks. And this is where I think you want to be uh, to start the year, given what's happening in rates, but also what's happening on the earnings side. And here, what's interesting on the chart here on the right is valuations are very polarized, which means that yes, markets are expensive. So here we're looking at Europe more specifically, Markets are expensive compared to historical norms, but at the sector level, you have very expensive uh, sectors and you have just marginally expensive sectors or even cheap sectors uh, in, some, in some cases. And so here, I think what we're gonna see is a good alignment of stars for some sectors which have reasonable valuations such as financials, energy, and probably strong momentum in earnings, which should allow for some outperformance at the start of the year. The other point I want to make on, on equities, and I think that's going to be important going forward, is some segments have been hurt quite dramatically last year. One can think of non-profitable tech, which had you know, very, very difficult 
uh, moments, including actually uh, so far this year in January. And we also have green stocks, which also had some kind of a bubble in 2020 and a much more difficult time last year. And here I would say our views are actually diverging on those two segments. Uh, we're getting more positive on, on clean stocks. And one of the reasons is what you see here on the left, which is, yes, there was probably irrealistic expectations uh, on growth. And there was also probably some exuberance in prices for those stocks. And this is what you see here with the short interest ratio on the uh, benchmark ETF ICLN, so the iShares Clean Energy ETF. But what, where we are now is actually a much more moderate uh, level of short interest, which is probably you know, implying that investors consider now that most of the imbalances have been worked off, and therefore the ground is probably sounder for green stocks to become attractive again. And that's important because one of the lessons of last year is that a good trend is not necessarily a good trade. Uh, so clearly, nobody is doubting the fact that ESG is a big trend. It's going to continue for many years. And many investors are adopting ESG constraints, which means more capital inflows into greener stocks. But clearly, it doesn't mean that those stocks will grow up forever and in a straight line. And that's what we saw last year. But probably this year is going to be uh, better for the second. Meanwhile, if you look at the chart on the right, I think it's a lot less clear that this is the time to return to non-profitable tech. Uh, actually, we've seen that so far this year, it's been very, very difficult, bloodbath, actually, in some parts of, of this uh, segment. And the divergence with regular tech, so NASDAQ, for example, which is obviously dominated by uh, large cap tech, is, uh, is very, very impressive. This year, I think there will be a time uh, for this uh, segment to outperform again. Uh, some of those companies will actually deliver on high growth. But the problem is that at the moment, we think the momentum is still way too negative. We think that the pressure from interest rates is really uh, negative for, for this segment. And therefore, we would stay away for now uh, from, 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 from this part of the market and stay within tech for investors who still want to get exposure or be exposed to tech, really stay on the more, much more quality uh, parts of, of, this, of this sector. So this is for, for, for the equity side. If I move to the allocation in a few minutes. So as you see, we have a fairly unusual allocation at the moment, uh, nothing too crazy to start the year, to be honest. We are underweight in fixed income and Philip will discuss uh, what exactly this implies. We're also neutral in equities. We think as again, equity performance is expected to be positive this year, probably not as massive as what we had in 2021. Um, but I also want to spend a few minutes on commodities, uh, which is something we get a lot of questions uh, about. And here, I want to say that we had cut uh, commodities uh, exposure late last year for those who follow us uh, on a monthly basis. I think it's time to come back to oil. Uh, I've been impressed by how quickly the uh, speculative positioning has been cleaned up in the oil market. It was very, very stretched around October and November last year. We had this big, big correction, very abrupt uh, in November and December. And I think we are probably back into a few uh, months of bull market in, in oils. And I want to be exposed to that. I don't think the same is true for copper. And I would be on a tactical basis uh, a bit more cautious, especially because of what we are seeing in China and uh, developments in the real estate sector, which are 
not over at all. I think it's something that's going to last for a few quarters at least. So I want to be more cautious on copper. And obviously, gold uh, continues to have a pretty shaky uh, ride. Uh, I think it's getting on a more solid footing. And actually, it's interesting to see that gold hasn't really suffered that much from what we've seen in real rates so far this year. So it's pretty good signs, I think. But it's not yet where you really want to put your money. So I think there will be also a time for gold later this year. It's probably not just right now. But this is clearly an asset which looks better today than six months ago. In terms of the equity allocation, so I've discussed already uh, the, the outlook for cyclicals and green stocks uh, on the thematic side. I think these are things that we really want to be exposed to in 2022. We've also done a lot of work on inflation-proof companies, given that obviously inflation is extremely high. We just printed at 7% in the US. There are different ways to get exposed to inflation-proof companies. Some of them will be exposed, for example, to higher interest rates. We can think of uh, some financials, obviously. Some of them will be exposed to supply chains and shortages, uh, more in the industrial and material sectors. And some of them just have very strong pricing power. And that means that even though they get input cost pressures, they can just you know, pass them on to their own clients. So we've been building baskets on, on those different things. But if we look at the geographic uh, performance, uh, clearly, in our view, we want to be exposed to the more cyclical uh, parts of, uh, of the equity markets. And that's clearly Europe, uh, Europe meaning mostly Eurozone and the UK. I think it's less true for, for the Swiss market. But clearly, what we see is not only that the sector and style mix is more uh, attractive for, for that region, but also we see US investors warming up to Europe. And that's not happened for a little while. We want to be neutral in, in the US, but we want to be less exposed for now to other parts of the equity markets, especially emerging markets. I know some, uh, some investors think it's the right time to get back after a pretty significant uh, underperformance uh, last year from EM. Again, there will be a time probably uh, for EM. Uh, we just don't think it's, it's now. We think there is still too much risk from higher real rates, from Fed policy, from potentially higher US dollar. And so we prefer to be uh, invested in developed markets at this time. All right, um, I'm through with this section. So I'm gonna leave the floor to Philip to discuss uh, fixed income in more detail. Hello, um, uh, Maxime, can, can you just confirm that uh, you can hear me uh, okay? Yes, all good. Okay, well, thanks very much, Maxime, and um, hello, everyone. I hope everyone is, uh, is well and, uh, and, and safe. Um, so I'll, um, I'll just uh, spend a bit of time on the fixed income outlook in a bit more detail and uh, you know, maybe um, uh, re uh, reiterate a couple of points that uh, Maxime may have made on the, on the sort of more macro side of uh, things. Uh, and then I'll, I'll go into the details of uh, you know a couple of funds and uh, and products that we uh, we find interesting in the uh, in the space. Uh, so the the sort of building block for that informs our our fixed income views for the year. Uh, well, first start with the economic outlook. So uh, and that is closely linked to the sanitary experience. So uh, what has happened recently is uh, ex extremely interesting. So. Uh, we, you know, we, without being uh, experts on the matter, um, 
it does seem that uh, for the first time uh, since this started about two years ago, there, there's a high probability that the pandemic turns endemic, uh, given the nature of the uh, Omicron variant. Uh, and despite the really high number of cases we've had recently, and vaccination levels are not yet um, you know, where policymakers want, want them to be, uh, the, the experience in terms of restrictions on the economy has been much uh, milder. And that, uh, to us, given the nature of the variant and what it means for how the, uh, the, the, the sanitary experience may look like in the next one or two years, it means the probability of uh, more frequent or longer restrictions from here is much lower than what uh, we've experienced over the last two years. Uh, and that to me suggests, uh, to us suggests that there's a high probability that services activity can normalize and that uh, we can release a lot of services demand that could not express itself or had been frustrated to a, a great extent over the last two years. And as Maxim pointed out, there's a um, uh, the significant like uh, still savings on the side for uh, to, to express that demand. So that means to us that the growth outlook for 2022 and to, to some extent 2023 still looks uh, pretty decent. Uh, that if we just talk about credit fundamentals for now, it means that uh, the, the current state of the credit markets in terms of just the fundamental picture is already pretty strong and it's going to remain quite strong for at least the next 12 to 18 months. So that to us suggests that the default rate in credit, corporate credit is going to be still very low this year and probably into next year. So similar to last year. Uh, so actually last year in the European high yield, uh, the default rate was uh, just, just below 1%. Uh, the average recovery rate, uh, which is you know, heavily biased by by restructurings and, uh, and lower case count uh, was above 80%. So very, very little losses in corporate credit. We think that sticks this year. However, we think that as, the, um, as we progress through the cycle, uh, and as this cycle gives us something a bit different to what we had uh, over the last 10 years, uh, we start to see more dispersion in credit performance in 2022 uh, versus maybe what we had last year. Uh, and some of the, the underperformance areas for us uh, will be found on, on two, two main axes in developed markets. Uh, so the first one would be around financial policy. Uh, so we've seen increasing amounts of uh, debt finance m and uh, especially in the US at the end of last year. Uh, so that will put pressure on certain curves. So it tends to be more issuer specific or maybe specific to certain subsectors. Uh, same goes with LBOs or uh, you know, shareholder remuneration policies that become too, uh, too aggressive in certain segments. So that's where you're going to get like spread underperformance on those segments. Uh, and it's typical of mid-cycle to late-cycle conditions. And the second one is uh, for those sub-sectors or maybe issuers that are poorly positioned into like one particular uh, sector uh, where you get like significant input cost uh, inflation or pressure and little to no ability to pass that on uh, in terms of the top line. That means your margin compress and your cash flows uh, decrease or turn negative. And that's where your credit metrics, so leverage goes higher, credit metrics deteriorate. So those are the two axes where we'll be particularly uh, careful in, in terms of allocating capital. And the third one is, um, uh, which you know, Maxim alluded to is emerging markets. Uh, you know, if you if you enter a harsh or tightening cycle by uh, by the Fed, uh, you know, year to date the dollar has, has behaved okay, but 
Uh, you've already seen like um, aggregate underperformance in EM uh, segment last year, uh, you know, and specific areas that underperform uh, even more, uh, uh, like for example, Turkey. Uh, and, you know, it's very tempting to think it's idiosyncratic and for sure they did things specifically in that country that are particular to them and, and has, you know, magnified the underperformance. But uh, it really is something that we see at the aggregate level in EM where conditions are, are challenging and accidents will be, uh, are likely to be more numerous this, uh, this year. If we go back to the aggregate corporate credit market, we think spreads uh, will, uh, will, you know, will stay in a relatively narrow range, probably end the year a little bit wider than where they are uh, here, uh, but that the probability of, um, you know, like a very significant uh, spread widening even this year looks relatively low. Uh, now, before we turn to, um, uh, to rates, uh, obviously the, the link there is uh, um, the sort of economic picture where we've had that inflationary pressure build up for a while, but it didn't really matter too much to what central banks were doing for, for a little while. And, you know, we, we had like slight changes, well, slight, we had changes in, uh, in sort of announced mandates by uh, central banks with average inflation targeting, which meant that the reaction function was a bit looser. So you may get more nominal activity, more inflation, but that uh, didn't necessarily mean that central banks would, would tighten. And so the link with uh, interest rate volatility or what the curves may do was maybe a, a, a bit unusual or, or, or different. Um, that's changed in December uh, more clearly. I mean, you, you had warning signs, but in December it was very clear um, uh, that most major uh, central banks uh, changed their reaction function. And uh, you know, it's not just at the monetary policy level, uh, inflation has really become the focus of uh, politics and, and becomes a, a really political subject in, uh, in the US, especially with the midterms uh, this year. And now that John Powell has been, um, uh, you know, has gained the, the, the second mandate, uh, you know, the Fed is, uh, is less shy about uh, focusing on inflation and tightening policy. So that means uh, obviously uh, faster, uh, and a bigger rate hikes than uh, what they were saying last year and what the market was expecting like relatively recently. Uh, the market is, uh, you know, is moving along with the, with the dot plot, sometimes preempting it, sometimes like slightly behind. We think that's not over and possibly and quite likely uh, the Fed ends up hiking more than even what's priced in at the moment for, for 2022. So it gets some pressure from, the, from there. And the one thing that's, um, that's changed and was a bit taboo uh, until quite recently is what happens with the balance sheet. Uh, and every day you get more like uh, conviction from Fed speakers on uh, discussing the matter. Uh, and that means uh, basically we uh, will go from tapering, which is still buying bonds, but less of them every month, to quantitative tightening, which is reduction of the balance sheet. So not reinvesting the proceeds of bonds that come to maturity or even selling some bonds. Uh, so the speed at which the Fed will uh, shrink the balance sheet may have important ramifications for wider liquidity conditions. A lot of it will, uh, will be on the, the reverse repo facility. Uh, and that sort of matches the 1.5 trillion that uh, has been going around. So uh, the impact on the wider market may, may be relatively shallow if, uh, if that's done in, uh, in a relatively um, uh, healthy way. Um, if we move, so what that means for the US Treasury curve to us is that uh, first you get more interest rate volatility, uh, you know, along the lines of what we had last year, 
um, the sort of bear flattening, well, the sort of flattening trend we've had since uh, March of uh, 2021, we think that flattening trend continues. It's very typical of these sort of mid-cycle conditions. We think the curve, if you project yourself in 12 to 18 months time, will be flatter. Uh, and probably in the short term, what you get is bear flattening. The, the real interesting question on the US Treasury curve is what is the terminal rate, which is uh, where can the long end of the curve go uh, and, and based on what, where the policymakers, the, well, the, uh, the Fed thinks they can hike uh, rates to. At the moment, that stands around, at around like mid twos, could get a bit higher. Um, that's not what the market believes. Um, I, I tend to agree. I, I don't, don't think the terminal rate is particularly high, uh, especially in, a, in such a monetary system with so much debt in it. Uh, so you know, that would mean that as the curve gets flatter and you get some bear flattening, and if the long end of the curve goes back to revisit the levels we had in Q1 of last year, they, they may become attractive uh, position and defensive positions again for uh, you know, wider cross-asset portfolio. Uh, if we shift to the uh, ECB and uh, European government bonds, uh, you know, for the first time in a while, uh, it sounds realistic to think and imagine the ECB hiking interest rates uh, over the next 12 to 18 months. So, you know, could it late 2022 to if they accelerate the tapering or early 2023 if they don't deviate from the, the calendar that they articulated in, uh, in December. So that's a different environment to what we've had for since you know 2018-19 basically. Uh, it means the net supply of uh, government bonds uh, in um, uh, denominated in euro adjusted for central bank purchases well, will be fairly different. So if you take BTPs for example, uh, last year you probably the ECB uh, bought more than 100% of the net supply of BTPs. Uh, this year, they probably buy about two thirds of the net supply for the year. So it's a different technical environment. To us, it suggests that um, there's a, a relatively high probability that peripheral and semi-core spreads in government bonds widen. Uh, we don't think there's going to be like um, excessive volatility like you may have had in 2011 or even 2018. Uh, I think the put of the ECB on spreads it's is clearer now than uh, it may have been, and it's been discussed again recently. However, we think the pressure is on uh, is on widening. Um, the you know the bottom line basically is that the move you've seen year to date on real rates, uh, we do not think that that move is complete. Uh, we think it will go higher. Um, yeah, the 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 way in which it goes higher clearly is what matters to wider risk assets. Uh, if you get 100 bips move in real rates over a course of like a couple of weeks, the ramifications are, 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 are can be quite dramatic for risk assets. If it gets done over the year and, and with relatively uh, lower volatility, then obviously the, it's a milder pass and more digestible for, for risk assets. Um, you know, if, if we talk about the risk picture and what's on our mind for, uh, for that sort of like base case scenario I, I, I described, well, there's always geopolitics, and uh, you know, and that's been heating up a, a little bit at the moment. There is one risk though that it's, that is much more difficult to predict uh, and manage than uh, than other risks. So I won't comment in, in too many details. Um, you know, on, on central bank theory, uh, if liquidity is redrawn too quickly and in a way that's not managed uh, properly, then obviously you can see widening risk premiums across fixed income and credit markets and you know wider equity markets. I think. 
uh, we, we think that the um, policymakers are, are very well aware of that risk. So, uh, we think you should expect more volatility than that, uh, than last year, but not necessarily anything dramatic. Um, what what we tend to start thinking more about is is basically reflexivity. As you tighten financial conditions, and they will be tighter at some point this year, uh, from very loose levels, then you know, in, in in the sort of like economic and financial system we have, you then have an impact on the real economy. And and basically the growth outlook, if you fast forward in the second half of this year, you're going to end up with a growth outlook that you know, doesn't look as good as it does now. Uh, and that will be very close also to the point where the fiscal impulse will be deteriorating. And that may coincide with a flatter curve uh, and yields are higher uh, on average. At that point, duration may become attractive again. But right now, uh, duration risk is, um, you know, is, is more significant than credit risk, for example. So if you look at the fixed income spectrum, that is why we're underweight on, you know, typically on the on government bonds, uh, tend to be more neutral on IG and slight overweight high yield and, and specific parts of the high yield market. So what we like specifically in credit right now, uh, reopening same. So anything that would benefit from the uh, upswing in, uh, in services demand. So uh, that would be travel, tourism, hospitality, uh, possibly some airlines. Um, I think where, where you want to be careful is that some, some issuers and certain subsectors uh, you know, may have gotten like way too levered, so they need to be able to access equity uh, market, but that, you know, has been the case for many airlines uh, over the last couple of years and even uh, even recently. Uh, so it looks like balance sheet can, um, you know, can sort of survive uh, that, that COVID crisis. Uh, and, you know, compared to last year, we, we've had a bit of a start and stop uh, experience on how those sectors or those names have been trading through 2021. We think the trading experience or the, the sort of performance experience in terms of like uh, excess returns or credit spread performance will be better in 2022 for those sectors than it was last year, as in less volatility around it. The other things we like are anything with like uh, a good structure basically. And so that, you know, for example, senior secured high yield deference uh, in businesses and sectors we like where business risk is, is low. Is interesting. Why? Because, well, first, obviously, senior secured is a sound structure. Uh, but second, it's in floating rate uh, note format. So your duration is zero plus. Uh, you're not exposed to whatever is going on in uh, in um, uh, in sort of like yield curves and uh, and interest rate volatility. And more importantly, uh, that's the first order. The second order is like you may be worried that you know even though you don't have a lot of duration in a high bond. Uh, you may get a lot of outflows from high yield funds if like interest rates uh, go up a lot uh, in a short period of time. And that may mean that, uh, you know, if, even though there's nothing wrong with your bond, uh, you know, it suffers from the outflows and, and because of technical conditions. The, the beauty of FRNs is that a very significant proportion of the FRN market is owned by CLOs. And CLOs are term-friendly term uh, instruments. So uh, that means you're going to be less subject to uh, psychology of markets, emotions, and uh, uh, than what may be the case in high bonds are held more by ETF and uh, actively managed uh, bond funds. Uh, we still like financials. Uh, we have done so for a while because uh, you know the, the credit fundamental picture of the industry uh, remains extremely strong. Uh, it will remain the case uh, with a high degree of conviction over the next 12 to uh, 18 months. Uh, the other thing that 
is interesting and is better than what you see on the non-financial corporate credit part of the, the spectrum is that technicals are much more positive at the subordinated end uh, of, uh, of the segment because net supply, uh, if you just look at Cocos, uh, it's going to be very close to zero. If you look at everything subordinated, so Cocos plus all the legacy instruments is actually going to be quite negative because banks uh, keep uh, buying back that uh, old debt that was issued before the financial crisis and doesn't fit the current regulatory environment anymore. Um, so that's for the, um, uh, the overall outlook. So, uh, you know, that the, the way we reflect that in how we manage the fund, so, you know, we've got two fixed income funds, uh, the CLEX Flexible Bond Fund and the CLEX Financial Credit Fund. Uh, you know, both with uh, simple structures and levered bond books um, uh, and active uh, duration management. Uh, for both funds, we've been quite active in, uh, in, in, um, in managing duration. So that means like typically over the last 15 months, uh, while making sure we hedge properly and we operate at a low net duration, taking advantage sometimes of spikes uh, in yields in parts of the curve where uh, it, it got attractive. And that has been mainly the long end of the curve uh, since March of last year. So which we implemented mainly through uh, Euro long dated sovereigns or long dated dollar uh, corporates. Uh, I think some of those opportunities will pop up again this year, but we feel at the moment it's too early to try uh, and get too exposed to that, uh, that thematic. And right now it is a good time to still be well hedged or if anything, even like uh, if one can trade uh, a bit short on, on Govis or over a multi-week period, we think that makes sense. Um, you know, it, it is a very complicated environment if you look at traditional allocation uh, uh, within fixed income, whether it's government bonds where your total return last year was negative, uh, it's all, all across the board, uh, it's negative again year to date, same with investment grade. Um, high yield last year gave you just about the carry uh, in, uh, in many spaces. At least you, you didn't have like tail risk or, or too many defaults. So it's, it's not the, the easiest environment to navigate. But having said that, if you've got flexibility in either how you allocate capital between the different segments and being a bit dynamic with that, uh, how you can um, generate alpha. So you know, making sure you allocate with conviction enough on you know, maybe some of the segments I, I, I just described before on reopening, FRNs, whether it's IG or high yield uh, and financials, uh, and also being active in, uh, in covering duration, you know, you, you, can, um, uh, you can actually produce good results without using leverage. So, uh, you know, for example, uh, the, those funds were respectively up uh, 6.2 and 8% uh, net in, uh, in Euro last year, and both started the year positively uh, this year, uh, up like 0 0.4 and, uh, and 0.2%. Uh, and we think, you know, all in all, uh, 2022 is going to be a, a year that, you know, has good chances of being quite similar to 2021, but maybe with bigger ranges and a bit more volatility than uh, what we saw last year. Uh, and one difference as well is that as we get closer to the end of this year, it, it's quite possible that our views going forward would have evolved. Whereas, you know, at the end of last year, we, we had views that maybe were not too dissimilar to what they were at the beginning of last year. Um, the other thing that, um, uh, you know, if you, if you look more at some of the products we've uh, we've been discussing on the desk, uh, uh, on the solution side of the business uh, that fit our macro view and our fixed income uh, views for the year, uh, you know, anything that lever leverages like investment grade default risk uh, intrinsically, so without financial leverage, 
but you know, with short maturities, we like a lot. So if you take like um, uh, really the most junior, like the equity tranches of Itrax main uh, old series that mature at the end of this year or end of next year, uh, and you, you can get decent yields on those uh, uh, still. The interesting bit about it is that if you take the worst names of those indices, we're extremely comfortable. I mean, uh, with, with the default risk, so the names you're talking about, things like Lufthansa is the worst name in the basket. Uh, you know, we don't love the credit in the, you know, on the 10-year horizon, but next one or two years, we're very comfortable with, um, uh, with, with, with this sort of position. And that basically is a position where uh, there's little uh, market risk. So whatever the wider market does on the five-year point, uh, spreads get volatile. One-year spreads won't get very volatile. In this part of the cycle, basically, five-year point gets quite volatile, uh, and maybe five-year spreads widen, then the curve steepens, and the one-year spread doesn't really move too much. Uh, so, so those those exposures we feel are, are very interesting and really fit with our view. Uh, so you don't get obviously much duration exposure at all. Uh, and the other thing is like position uh, uh, for uh, you know more mild widening of um, uh, European government bond spread. So you know uh, doing that on the basket of maybe OATs and BTPs versus Brun, uh, we think it's an attractive trade where the downside risk is is very low. Uh, the correlation to um, uh, you know more traditional allocations, whether it's equity or credit, is low uh, or even possibly quite negative. So that's a trade we uh, we tend to like. Uh, I'll stop on that. Um, uh, in uh, you know, I'm, I've got time on uh, on my mind. It's been 45 minutes, so I, I don't know if there, there were Q and A, uh, Maxime, that you, you wanted to address. Yes, thanks a lot, Philippe. So yes, I think uh, the participants have the ability to ask questions in writing. Um, so if you want to write some questions, we have just a few minutes for that, and then we'll be able to take them with Philippe. Uh, so please feel free to write. We'll leave you a few minutes for that uh, before we close the call. <clears throat> Maybe just uh, just one one thing you, you may want to know. So we will be able to share with you uh, the presentation material. Uh, so by email over the coming few uh, days, probably tomorrow. And also we will make available a replay of this call uh, in audio format uh, for those of you who want to uh, listen to it again or share it inside your organization. All right, so there is a first question on ESG versus traditional energy industry. Um, so that, that's obviously a big, big question, I think, uh, which was also discussed a lot um, last at the end of last year. I think obviously there is a big trend and the trend is for traditional energy industry to converge towards more you know, greener energy mix. The question is, who's going to be the winner? and how fast are they going to deliver it? Uh, but clearly, this is also one of the reasons what, that we think energy is interesting, because obviously there is uh, the, the tailwind from energy prices in the context of the current energy crisis, but there is also the more structural trend of to what extent will those names improve in terms of ESG uh, constraints and ESG ratings, and to what extent will that lead a re-rating of those stocks if there is a lot more capital inflows into, into the segment. So this is one of the things we need to, to carefully look at. And it is happening because what we've seen is actually many oil companies have, have sold some of their uh, dirty assets to improve mechanically their uh, ESG credentials. 
we have more questions? I can't see any uh, at the time. So there is a question on EM debt and whether it's going to be underperforming with three or four red hikes uh, by the Fed. So maybe Philippe, you want to take this, your views on EM debt and how you want to position? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, what I would say is that um, valuations on, on EM debt have, have already moved um, you know, a fair amount last year, especially at the end of last year. Um, you, know, you have to differentiate different segments. I think Chinese re real estate is, uh, is impaired and uh, is going through like a, a, a sort of like collective restructuring event. So, so I will put that to the side because I think that's, uh, that's specific and, uh, and different. So valuations are better, but the, the, the issue is risk. And really, um, the, just the fact that the, if the Fed was just to, um, to hike three times this year of 25 basis points, um, and just start shrinking the balance sheet in a runoff basis uh, towards the end of this year. Uh, and inflation numbers actually cool down a little bit uh, and you know, stay a bit above, uh, uh, if you take core PC, stays a bit above the, the Fed mandate, but not, you know, do, do not uh, sort of like uh, go way beyond that. Then actually that you know, becomes a bit Goldilocks and, uh, uh, and the experience for EM debt may be okay. Uh, the problem is like there's no room for accident on the risk picture for for EM, uh, and you know I I think that's where like the we feel that the risk is more that uh, an skewed towards the Fed being more aggressive. Uh, clearly, the rhetoric is is going that way. Uh, we think economic activity is going to be sustained. I think one of the big issues this year with like the um, the inflation picture uh, is the, um, the the labor market that's becoming fairly tight. Uh, in the US, uh, you know, and you, you may get relief from uh, the global uh, supply chain a bit later this year, uh, but the, the domestic picture in terms of like um, services inflation, which matters a lot more, Good, goods inflation is going to decrease a bit, but services inflation should be picking up this year. Uh, wage inflation, uh, well, wage contribution to inflation, shelter contribution to inflation is actually very sticky and you know is really in the upswing so that's why you're seeing like pretty sustained core levels and i, I think it's going to be tough for those core inflation numbers to uh, to go back down like uh, too quickly and uh, and too hard so i think that will constrain fed policy and i think the risk is more that the fed is more aggressive than just three hikes of 25 basis points and a bit of runoff of the balance sheet towards the end of the year and that means you stay in a risky environment for uh, EM assets and EM debt in general. Uh, and I think the, one of the issues as well is that <coughs> it's a very heterogeneous like asset class, whether it's equity or, or debt, obviously. Having said that, you have a lot of like global EM debt funds or, uh, and you know, if you just have like, for example, Turkey defaulting this year, and that, you know, it's not something I would rule out. Uh, that you know will will create issues for the wider EM market. So I think you know we feel that uh, as we progress through the year, there is a decent chance that you have a good entry point to start allocating back uh, to the better parts of uh, EM debt, and that you get may get a very good entry point to uh, to do that. Then uh, we just feel it's uh, it's a bit too early. So I'm saying now uh, specifically on LATAM. Uh, so LATAM, uh, that's where, like, uh, you know, differently to Turkey, um, uh, you've had like uh, well, well, some of the risk events you've, uh, that were specific to LATAM that you had was uh, obviously in Peru and Chile, uh, 
uh, you had like uh, so socialist um, um, uh, outcomes of, uh, of elections. You got the Brazil election a bit later this year uh, as well, which, um, uh, you know, the, the, the worst case there is that uh, it becomes very contested. Uh, it's very close, contested afterwards, and, uh, and you get troubles. Uh, we, we don't have a strong view on whether or not that is likely, to be honest. However, what we would say is that given the macro context for EM and the head of those uh, Brazil elections, uh, we feel that the risk appetite of like, um, uh, you know, the, the investor base for EM assets is likely to stay relatively uh, low to moderate uh, in the first half of this year. Uh, as and when you get like <laughs> accidents that uh, that happen uh, in EM and outside of LATAM, actually, uh, or, or within, I don't think LATAM is the worst region uh, at the moment, uh, then that may be when, when you get your, uh, your interesting entry point. And to, to, be, uh, to be clear, there, there's already some like uh, um, Brazil corporates that we feel are trading at attractive levels. If you look at the all-in yield in, uh, in dollars, like uh, could be Rededor or Petrobras, uh, you know, we like those names, uh, but we, um, and you know, that the, the fact that we're cautious on emerging markets doesn't mean we may not have a small allocation to those, but before we allocate with conviction uh, and, 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 uh, and for a longer lasting period in uh, EM markets, we, uh, uh, we want to get closer to the point where we think that the Fed has really progressed uh, in terms of like the, the past that's coming. Uh, so, you know, if, if you go back to the, um, to the late 90s experience, for example, um, it, it is quite possible. And, and, and frankly, the sanitary experience, experience between DM and uh, EM at the moment is quite different and, and may mean that, you know, that sort of gross divergence that you've started to have um, uh, last year between developed markets and emerging markets may actually uh, continue. And that what's going on uh, uh, in the US may put pressure on uh, financial conditions and financial stability in parts of emerging markets. Uh, and as and, when, uh, as and when that actually crystallizes, that may be the point where you want to go and buy uh, you know, the better parts of, uh, of the EM debt uh, spectrum. Thanks, <laughs> So we have uh, another question for you. Uh, in your view, defaults are absolutely not an issue in fixed income this year? Uh, well, it's, it's never not an, uh, not an issue, uh, I, I would say. Uh, I, I, uh, especially in developed markets, what, we, uh, what we're saying is that if you take the high yield market in aggregate, uh, we have a high degree of conviction that the default rate in 2022 will be low. And we can infer that from uh, the growth outlook for this year and the level of conviction we have around that growth outlook. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, more at the bottom up level and per sector, um, the sort of liquidity conditions for most high yield issuers. Uh, you know, there's no sort of like big cliff of refinancing that needs to be addressed. Uh, but, you know, that. Having said that, uh, we feel that obviously beginning of this year and last year, all the, the sort of like um, best conditions you're going to get uh, in terms of like the default experience. And that from here, but you know, it's not the next month or, or quarter, or, uh, but from maybe the second half of this year, it starts to deteriorate. Uh, and that means first, the deterioration will be more, we feel more micro or idiosyncratic. So, you know, as I said, issuer specific. So you may get issuers like 
know, you know, there's been tensions, for example, on the chicken producer in uh, in the UK called Bovran. Like, there's a there's big like input cost inflation. It's difficult to pass on the cost to uh, to their customers, which were quite big and, uh, and have the bargaining power. So margins contract, cash flows are difficult. You're gonna get stories like that. They're gonna feel more micro and idiosyncratic. But as you progress and and you go to like a tighter uh, financial condition environment, uh, then it will move from it, it, the the growth environment from like 2023 is is likely to evolve from what we have this year. And that means that going forward from like 2023 to maybe 2025, then the default rate outlook will be different. But we don't think it's a, a you know it's not the biggest risk we have on our mind at the moment, at least for the next quarters for sure and one good way to sort of um, try to see uh, what uh, what the, the sort of aggregate market participant view is on that is to look at the uh, relative implied volatilities of bond ETFs uh, and that's something we've had for uh, for the last 12 months already uh, which is the implied volatility of the high yield ETF in the US is lower than the implied volatility of the US investment grade ETF that tells you that market participants are much more worried about the inflation risk than the start of a default cycle or, or economic risk in, uh, in general. And, and to us, that makes sense. We, we, we agree with the consensus and the, the market implied view uh, at the minimum over the next few quarters. Thanks, Philippe. Uh, so I'll take the very last question before we close the call. That's a question on the metaverse and the future of Facebook. So. I'm going to say right away, I'm no expert either in the metaverse or in Facebook. And uh, uh, so I'm not going to comment specifically on that. On the metaverse itself, I think uh, it's for real. Um, I think it's something that's going to happen. The question is, we are still very early. So it's very difficult to know exactly what exactly it's going to look like in the end and where exactly are we going to get with this uh, technology. Uh, but we've done some work on some of the key companies that are exposed to, to the theme, because obviously the best way to get exposure is in crypto, as, I, as you all probably know. But there are a few companies either on the cloud, either on chips like Nvidia, for example, software companies like Roblox or Unity Software. So there are a couple of companies, Facebook is obviously one of them. But I think here there are two things. First, it's a question that's highly dependent on execution. So how are the company going to be the winners of this theme or not? And that's very, very difficult to say at this point. And second, I would say it's a bit similar to what I said before about green stocks. So a good trend doesn't make a good trade. And actually, we've seen a lot of excitement on Metaverse uh, in the second half of last year with massive increases in the price of those some of those stocks. So does it make a good trade today? Not that easy to answer. So probably it's going to be it's going to be about picking the right companies and the winners of this, but also making sure you don't buy them at the wrong time because obviously there will be ups and downs along the way. All right. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for your time. Happy New Year again. And obviously, if you have more questions, uh, give us a shout. You know where to reach us. Speak to you soon. Bye bye. This audio document is intended for information purposes only, and its content has no contractual value. It is not intended for people who are citizens of a country or jurisdiction in which its distribution, publication, provision, or use would be contrary to laws or regulations in force. This invitation does not constitute and should not be treated as an offer of investment service, investment advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or keep a financial instrument. The figures, comments, and analysis appearing in this document reflect Selexis' sentiment on the markets, their evolution, 
taking into account the economic context and the information possessed at the date of this recording, and cannot, however, constitute any commitment or guarantee from Celex. They may no longer be relevant on the day it becomes known. Any investment in a financial instrument involves risks, in particular of loss of capital, and any investor must make any investment decision in the light of their personal and financial situation, independently of Celex, and with the assistance of any opinion or advice specialized. Unless otherwise indicated, the sources of information are those of Celex. Celex reserves the right to modify the contents and terms of this document at any time. The data privacy policy is available on Celex's website. All rights reserved.